Soundstripe. Welcome to Spoiler Alert History, where the spoiler is that everything we talk about actually happened. I'm your teacher, Tasha Salisbury. This podcast serves as a summary of major historical events, a TLDR version of events for both students and teachers in secondary grades. This podcast provides lesson ideas for teachers and an entertaining classroom-friendly lecture for students. Ready? Let's get started. And remember, spoiler alert, this actually happened. As a quick disclaimer, our episodes in the future will be about 45 minutes long. This episode is about 20 minutes long. We've had some technical difficulties with our hosting website and we'll be working on getting those ironed out as we go. Before we get to the hard facts, I want you to imagine that you walked into your classroom and it has turned into a crime scene, a murder to be exact. For some bizarre reason, you have access to all the evidence. You have to take a look at all of it and then explain what happened to this person. You have to make a lot of inferences, drawing conclusions based on the evidence. You might even call an inference an educated guess or an evidence-backed guess. In this sense, being a historian and being a crime scene investigator are a lot alike. You both have evidence or proof to back up your ideas, but the story you tell varies from the story someone else tells. Why? Well, part of that is simply that we all see things from different perspectives. For example, if we find a fake red nose, footprints left by overly large shoes, and some hair, you might infer that a clown was guilty of committing this crime. I, however, might infer that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was assaulted by Bigfoot. Do we both have evidence to support our stories? Yes. Does the evidence more strongly support your story than mine? Probably. But the point is that we both had the same evidence and made totally different inferences. Our perspectives were different. What is a perspective? Well, it's how you see something. Think of yourself as standing on a table in a room. Is what you see and the way you see something the same as if you were lying on the ground? Of course not. Your perspective is different. The same is true in history. Where we stand affects what and how we see something. Our perspectives are shaped by our experiences with the rest of the world and our background. How I see the world, and therefore how I interpret evidence, is going to be very different from how someone else from a different place, with different training, and a different background sees something. For this reason, history is like a crime scene. It's best to call in experts to look at evidence. They might not agree on exactly what it means, but they can agree on major points and they can help us understand other things. They also know exactly what they're looking for and can help you see past bad information that might mislead you. It might interest you to know that there are historians who solely study the history of written history. This type of history is called historiography. Historiographers look at what has been written about a certain topic, by whom, and when, and they say, oh look, this history doesn't talk about this thing because of these reasons. Basically, as the author James Lowen says, historiography asks the questions, who wrote the history, who did not write the history, for what purpose was the history written? Confused? That's okay. Think of it like this. A history of slavery written right after the Civil War by a white plantation owner who trafficked in slavery and who lived in a state that joined the Confederate States is going to be very different from a history of slavery written in 2021 by a black man from New York whose ancestors were enslaved. That makes sense. They have different perspectives. It's important to keep in mind that these histories and what they talk about are important because they help us understand the mindset of the time in which they were written. That's why so many people got upset about the monuments to men who fought in the name of the Confederate States of America. 
They were mad because of the historiography of these statues, many of which weren't put up until the 1960s and were done purposefully to remind those who joined the civil rights movement that owning another person had once been considered a source of power and wealth in the United States. In the 1960s, it felt like someone was saying, hey, remember how slavery used to be a thing in the United States? Well, we wouldn't mind if someone brought it back. So in 2020, when people started to understand the historiography of these statues, they started to get uncomfortable. They weren't mad necessarily that the men represented in those statues had fought in the Civil War. What they were mad about was that those statues and those men were put up specifically at a time so that they would remind people of slavery. This is why it's important to study historiography. We have to know the history of history in order to get a bigger perspective on something. You might hear older people say, history is different from when I was in school. I think teachers are teaching things wrong. It probably feels that way. Things have changed. But the truth is that teachers are teaching information that has been found by using historiography and taking in more perspectives. So people who used to be considered heroes, because we only read about them from the perspective of people who benefited from their actions, are now considered, at the very least, more complex, and sometimes straight-up bad guys. Why is that? Because we are doing historiography and realizing that earlier versions of history left out perspectives of people who disagreed with what certain authors wanted to believe. We are taking into consideration the people whose voices haven't been heard up until this point. There's an African proverb that says, until lions have historians, the hunt will always glorify the hunter. This means that until the lion can write his perspective, the story of the hunt will always focus on how brave the hunter was for going after a lion, not what the lion felt or experienced by being hunted. This is why we talk about a history of something and not the history of something. The story we read is one version of events, not the only version of events. Historians can write from their perspective and support that perspective with evidence, but they can't go back in time and watch exactly what happened and write that story free of all of their beliefs and ideas. Not only does who wrote the history and when they wrote it matter, but also why the history was written. Most people think that we write history just to tell the story about what happened. Sometimes that's true, but often historians write or talk about the past to convince you of something. Sometimes this can be really basic, like a historian wanting to convince you that Benjamin Franklin, or as I like to call him, Benjamin Franks, was the kind of dude who would totally hit up Vegas for a weekend. But other historians have more complicated or controversial things that they want to convince you of, like that Andrew Jackson was justified in forcefully removing Native Americans from their land. When you recognize that historians have something they want to convince you of, you can start to look for their motives. Now, we don't usually use the word motive outside of discussing a crime, which makes historians sound like we're all super tough criminals who will get our prison buddies to fight you for the right to check out a book at the library. This is hilarious to me, because most historians just want to be left alone, and the thought of getting into a physical fight with someone scares the crap out of us. When we talk about historians having a motive, we mean that they have reasons for doing something. Sometimes those reasons are good and pure, and sometimes they're not. Added to the motives of the historian are the motives of people from the past. Why did people in the past do what they did? What was it that they wanted? The answers to these questions are as varied and different as every person in the world. Add to that the fact that we all have biases when we look at the past. What is a bias? Well, it's like a perspective. It's how we see something, but sometimes it reveals itself as a belief that one thing is better than another. 
Our biases include things like our likes and dislikes, as well as things we agree with and disagree with. For example, I have many biases. One of them just happens to be that the best movie of all time is Princess Bride. You can argue with me all you want. I will disagree with you. I will fight you with a sword and cool Spanish accent and say, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. This is a bias. You have your own bias. Another bias might be that I think the drivers from neighboring states are the worst drivers in the world, and they for sure cause all the traffic problems in my state. A lot of people have this bias about drivers from neighboring states. On a more serious note, I also have a bias that certain people in history have no redeeming qualities. Why? For some of them, I just feel like the bad they did outweighs any small amount of good they might have done. And for others, I just don't like them because I feel like they would annoy me if they were alive today. Is that petty? Absolutely. But that's part of history too. We get to gossip about the dead and we don't have to worry that they're going to post something on TikTok or Instagram. Be like, did you hear what Tasha Salisbury said about me? She was talking smack about me and even though I've done all these good things, I just have one thing to say to her. What's good? One thing we can do to help prevent our biases from completely blinding us to other versions of the past is to try and look at history with an empathetic viewpoint. Historian and teacher Jeff Noakes says there are really two ways of looking at the past. One of them is an empathetic view of the past, and the other is a deficit view of the past. In an empathetic view of the past, we look at things and think that people acted the way that they did because it made sense given their values, technology, priorities, and understanding of the world. Take, for example, human sacrifice in Aztec culture. Instead of looking at it and going, oh my gosh, these horrible people thought that killing someone would make their crops grow, we look at it and go, a lot of cultures believe that sacrificing something valuable to a higher being makes the higher being happy and therefore ensures prosperity. It makes sense that they would see sacrificing a human life, which is very valuable, as something that would be a good payment to the gods to ensure prosperity. The other way of looking at the past is a deficit view of history, which Dr. Noakes defines as looking at people and saying that people acted the way that they did because they were stupid or immoral. Instead of going, you know, doctors in the past didn't even clean off their instruments because they didn't know about germs, we would say, did you know doctors in the past didn't clean off their instruments because they were stupid? Can you see how this might be problematic? Now, that being said, having an empathetic viewpoint about the past doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything that one source or one author writes or believes. It means that you try and understand why they believe that way. To more fully illustrate my point, imagine this scenario. You're riding on the subway, the underground train, not the chain restaurant. You don't know where to sit, but you notice a seat next to a kindly looking old lady with her bag of groceries. You decide that this is a good, safe spot to sit, and being the friendly person that you are, you strike up a conversation with the elderly lady. She has a very interesting accent, and you ask her where she's from. I'm from Germany, she replies. Oh, you answer, even more curious, and what brings you to the United States? Well, she answers, after the Fuhrer died, things in Germany were no good anymore, so I came here. You know, you can't believe what people say about him. He was a nice man and wouldn't do the things that he, they said he did. Now, you and I both know that the word Fuhrer is a term of respect for Adolf Hitler, which makes what she said even more wild. Hitler was a nice man? He wouldn't do those things? What kind of crazy pills is this old lady taking? In case you're wondering, this story actually happened. 
When asked why the old lady thought that Hitler was a good person, she said that she used to work as a secretary in his office when she was in the Hitler Youth. One day she was having a really bad day and was sitting at her desk crying. Hitler came out of his office and noticed her crying and sent away all his important generals. He sat down and talked to her and found out why she was sad. He gave her a hug and told her everything was going to be okay. The old lady ended her story with, And I just don't think a man who did something that kind would be capable of the things that they said he did. Wow. And yikes. And wow. But mostly yikes. Now, if we view this story through an empathetic lens, we can see why this woman would believe that Hitler was a good person. He was kind to her, and she doesn't think kind people could do those things. However, just because we are empathetic doesn't mean we can dismiss the facts. Hitler was responsible for the Holocaust and killed millions of people. He abused his power, and his decisions helped cause a world war. He was not a good person. Being empathetic doesn't mean you have to be stupid, but it does mean that you have to try and understand why someone would think the way that they do. Historians are in pursuit of truth. They want facts and good information, not opinions about people that can't be supported. Remember, as James Lowen says, people have the right to their own opinion. They do not have a right to their own facts. You can have the opinion, for example, that Dan Sickles was an amazing person, but that doesn't change the fact that he shot a guy on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. I, I know what you're thinking. Who the heck is Dan Sickles? More on him later. His story is bonkers. How do historians establish what is a fact about the past? Well, they read a lot of primary sources. Primary sources are things that were written or come from, people who witnessed or participated in an event firsthand, or who were alive when something occurred. For example, a journal written by a teenage girl who was alive during the moon landing could be a primary source about the moon landing. When enough primary sources agree about something, like dates, times, numbers, etc., those things are considered facts. However, primary sources are also filled with biases. After all, people in the past are just that. People. Thomas Jefferson's journals are among some of my favorite primary sources. In one of his journal entries, he talks about faking sick with a headache for several days because he said something stupid in front of a girl that he liked. And honestly, that's super relatable, Tommy. We feel for you. Historians also have to acknowledge that primary sources were written by people who had biases and, equally important, people who had agency. Sometimes we forget that people in the past had agency, or the ability to choose. We act like they just existed and things occurred around them. That's not the case at all. Every person in the past had agency. Sometimes you'll even hear historians refer to people in the past as agents, and they don't mean it like they were super cool secret spies. What they mean is that people in the past could act and do things. We have to remember that people could make choices because if we don't remember this, then their actions become much less heroic and much less interesting. People who hid Jews in their homes during the Holocaust had the same choices as those who did nothing or those who helped hunt the Jews. Just because a choice comes with a crappy consequence does not mean that someone in the past did not have a choice. It means that they had a choice with crappy consequences. For example, many of those people who participated in the Holocaust claimed they didn't have a choice. They said they killed the Jews because if they didn't, someone would have killed them. What that means is they had a choice, and the consequence of that choice was terrible, but they still had a choice. We might understand why they chose to do what they did, even if we don't agree with their choice. 
but they still had a choice. When we forget that primary sources were written by people who had the power to make choices, we ignore the fact that one person, one choice, has the power to change the world. And that's not cool, to say the least. So historians are pretty careful when they evaluate primary sources. Once a historian has read enough primary sources, they use them to create a history, a version of events based on the stories told by those primary sources. This history is what is known as a secondary source. History textbooks are secondary sources. Let me clarify even more. Let's say that you and your friends witness a fight in the lunchroom and you come and tell me about it. You are primary sources. You saw what happened and are now telling me. If I write down a version of what happened based on what you and your friends told me, that version of events is a secondary source. Make sense? Good. But what about history that occurred before there was writing? What are those sources? I'm so glad that you asked, brilliant student of mine. Of course, things occurred before writing was invented. These events are studied by a specific kind of historian called an archaeologist. While historians study the past through documents, archaeologists study the past through objects, which we call artifacts. Archaeologists are even more like crime scene investigators than historians because they have to make inferences based only on the objects that they find and what we know about the world at that time. Think of archaeology like this. If you were going to go through someone's backpack and nothing had any writing on it, what would you learn about the person? If it were my backpack, you might think, wow, this person really liked snacks and colorful pens and this handsome British actor with high cheekbones who looks a lot like Loki from Thor. Yes, I'm talking about Tom Hiddleston. And this other handsome guy with a beard and this baby. But you wouldn't know everything about my life. You might make inferences, like that I am constantly hungry and that I like coloring, or that I am married and have the cutest baby in the world. Seriously, my baby is the cutest. I'm not biased. It's a fact. Full stop. But you wouldn't know that I teach history, or that my husband is super awesome and even more handsome than Tom Hiddleston. Again, not biased. Just fact. In other words, the biggest difference between archaeologists and historians is what they use to write their history and make their inferences. Historians use documents and archaeologists use objects. There is one other major difference between historians and archaeologists. It's one that is both comical and kind of true. The difference between a historian and an archaeologist is what they are willing to lick in pursuit of information. Hear me out. I am a historian. My information comes from documents. My friend is an archaeologist. Her information comes from artifacts. One day my friend invited me to come on an archaeological dig. I was pretty excited because I'd never been on a dig before. I showed up and was happily working. I'm pretty sure I looked like a five-year-old happily playing in the dirt. Then I came across a white shard of something. I was very excited and I called my friend over. What is it? I asked. My friend shrugged and said, either bone or porcelain, it's hard to tell. Then, to my horror, she brushed dirt off of this white shard and licked it. Oh, that's definitely porcelain, she said. It's kind of salty. Bones aren't salty. What? She explained that sometimes the best and fastest way to tell what something was on a dig was to taste it so that you could classify it. Nope, not doing it. She said it wasn't a big deal. I beg to differ. Archaeologists are like the cool kids who went into history and will totally eat anything on a dare. Historians are like me. We believe that only food should be eaten and that if you lick something to see if it's bone or porcelain, there's something wrong with you. On that note, I hope you've learned a lot from this episode. 
We talked about using evidence and making inferences in order to tell our stories about the past. We also talked about perspective and historiography, or the history of history. Along with historiography, we discovered that you can look at people in history and acknowledge that they had agency, or the ability to choose, while still trying to see what they did in an empathetic way. We also learned that historians use documents to research the past, and archaeologists use objects. And of course, most importantly, we learned that archaeologists are much more willing to try things than historians. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and to follow us on social media. If you feel like this is something that is a helpful resource or just fun to listen to, please tell your friends and family about us. You can also find more stories and ideas at spoileralerthistory.org. If you want to support us and get perks like ad-free episodes and help us to provide you with even more resources, you can give at patreon.com. Tune in next time for when we talk about human migration to the Americas. This has been Spoiler Alert History, and everything we talk about actually happened. All material was created by me, Tasha Salisbury. This podcast was produced and edited by Tasha Salisbury. The theme song, Quiet Uprising, was performed by Cast of Characters and is provided courtesy of Soundstripe.